Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Podcast. In today's world of ever-increasing noise, developing choicefulness is the key to creating safer, happier, and more meaningful lives for ourselves, our children, and our families. Featuring today's top experts, that's what this podcast is all about. We're calling it Choiceful because it involves a funnel of three concepts, awareness at the top, ability in the middle, and control at the bottom. Now, the funnel means this. It means that you've got to be aware before you can develop certain abilities. And you have to be aware and develop those abilities before you can use the abilities to control your life and maximize the control you have in your life. Welcome to Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Yurcha, and I'm here with my podcast partner, developmental and educational psychologist and media expert, Dr. Rob Ryer. And this is episode 33. Now, in our last episode, Rob and I had a wonderful time talking with acclaimed voice actress and director, Tracy Moore. Tracy is the founder of Create Studio, and she's been the voice of Share Bear. Princess Toadstool, George and George Shrinks, and the original Sailor Moon. And in that episode, we invited families to get playful, be creative, and connect as a family through a fun and exciting activity that we called the Family Entertainment Challenge. If you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, give it a listen. We know that you and your family will really enjoy it, and it's designed to help you gain valuable insights into your kids and to strengthen parent-child communication and connection. Now, in today's episode, we are excited to be talking with Dr. Janice Johnson-Dias, the renowned sociologist and activist, and the author of the important new book, Parent Like It Matters, How to Raise Joyful, Change-Making Girls. She's the co-creator of the Grassroots Community Foundation, a public health and social justice organization that develops, scales, and funds community health initiatives for impoverished women and girls. And she's the proud mom of teen activist Marley Dias, founder of 1,000 Black Girl Books and the youngest person on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list. So Janice, uh, welcome to Live Above the Noise. It's just fantastic to have you with us today. I am so excited to be here and to talk with you too. It's going to be so much fun. <laughs> for, for us as well. Ready. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, now, as I, as I said, you've written this wonderful new book and you also have this just terrific organization and we want to talk about these things, but first your story, you tell a lot of wonderful stories, very compelling stories in your book. And we'd just like to start with a little bit about you. You know, what made you decide to write this book and do the the terrific work that you do? I think that what made me write this book is a very, very precocious and insistent daughter who said I had to write it. Um, (laughs) And she has been on the national stage for the past five years. And in that time... You know, people would come up to her at the end of a talk or a workshop and say, you know, so how are you this way? And she would just kind of point to her mom and because I'm the one who accompanies her and people would come over to me looking for like, 
well, how did you get this kid? And sometimes I would be glib and say stuff like, have your kid eat broccoli and sleep, and I'm sure they'll be fine. <laughs> and over the years, though, the kind of glib response was insufficient. And people started to ask more probing questions. And I really like the questions about who Marley was, but at one level, I was irritated, I would say. Could just be my personality of being irritated because I wanted to reject the idea that Marley was exceptional. And people often try to make Marley um, exceptional. And while I adore my daughter, I do. I wanted people to not do what I see often done, which is to suggest that there's some kind of simply natural biological reasons for why she cares about the world and um, introduce them to girls across the globe, especially girls within my own organization, the Grassroots Community Foundation, who have really been nurtured to care about the world and for them to begin to realize that we could structure children's environment and our society to develop and raise children who could be change makers. That while Marley was special, because each of us is special, she wasn't exceptional in the sense that, oh, you can only have one in the kind of Highlander effect. So with her pushing my desire to share this message that we can really cultivate environments for raising children who are interested in, you know, creating a more positive society mm-hmm. that is really kind of like, that's the emotional impetus for the book. And then, you know, a bunch of people who felt like you got to do something. You can't just, you can't just kind of talk to us about it, do something. This is how the book really came about. And I'm so delighted to have the reverse order happen. She wrote her book and then she was just like, well, what are you going to do about it? And so <laughs> the what am I going to do about it really led to Parent Like It Matters. So I'm excited in every way. So for some of our audience, many of them will know your daughter and your daughter's work, but for some of them that may not, Could you just give them a little bit of a primer on what your daughter has done and how she is in the national spotlight? Yeah. So my daughter is Marley Dias, and she is the founder and creator of a social justice campaign, really primarily directed towards children literature, titled Hashtag 1000 Black Girl Books. And in the sixth grade, she became frustrated by the absence of books with Black girl protagonists, especially Black girls as the main character, and decided to collect 1,000 books to donate. And over the past five years, she's collected 13,000 books and has donated them across the globe. And those books have Black girls as the main character. She has also written her own book, published by Scholastic, titled Marley Dias Gets It Done, And So Can You?, And she has executive produced as well as read on her own Netflix series, Bookmarks. Um, And so, you know, she's a notable speaker across the globe. She's the youngest person on Forbes 30 Under 30 and awardee for the Smithsonian Ingenuity Award and other awards. Wow, that is just amazing. And what comes out of that for me is your daughter obviously just is absolutely passionate about some things. And in your book, one of the things that you talk about is passion and creating passion and how the parent needs to cultivate that passion and find out what their child is passionate about. 
Can we go there for a minute and talk about that area of your book? Yeah. So I really, you know, I'm excited to talk to folks about passion because much of the public conversation about passion has been tied to notions of purpose. And it has been a conversation that really is about some kind of singularity. This idea that you should be passionate about one thing, that you have one purpose in life. And in the book, I talk about harmonious passion and the need to kind of cultivate those passions in children by exposing them to the broadest variety of things, rather than suggesting that they have one passion and that they should monetize that passion. Hmm. My daughter is extremely passionate about reading, but she's passionate about a whole host of things. And what I ask of caregivers in the book is to expose their children to a variety of things and really encourage, and first they need to watch, right? Like watch what your children are attracted to such that that passion breeds a kind of joyfulness inside of them such that they want to do it without your prompting. And when caregivers do that, they alleviate themselves of having to be the people pushing their kids towards yet another thing. Come on, take up that thing, take up that thing. Is that passion is a gateway to change making because children will be so enamored by what they're doing, they'll become proficient in it and they'll want to share it and they will have this kind of sense of fulfillment that will help them through all that they do. So my daughter's passion for reading, reading all sorts of books is really what has really propelled her towards this campaign. So that five years, you know, from the time she was 10 to now she's 16, she's still encouraged to do it because she's passionate about mm. it. And she doesn't see it as a job. She sees it almost like a call-in, which is what people call purpose in some respects in the kind of common everyday speak. So I really encourage caregivers to be people who are excited to explore with children, but also that they too explore their own passions because it is in having your own passions that you begin to have shared language with your, you know, your daughter and all children around you. Yes. Jenny, um, I have a question for you with regard to Marley's perception of the current educational system with regard to nurturing passions. Oh, I mean, she has right now she has some extremely harsh critique of the educational system. Yeah, I would think so. If you went to her Instagram, you'll see right now she's just like online schooling is destroying me. Uh -huh. A part of it is. Marley has been taught in this household and in the people around us to really value learning yes. and to value proficiency. And that is often a challenge, even without COVID, in the educational spaces that she spent a good deal of time, simply because I was born poor. And so I've had to figure out how I'm going to um, make money. And in the process of doing that, I've had to send her to school. And so she has spent a lot of time in educational, traditional educational institutions. She goes to a local public school and schools, their charge and our parental charge and our household kind of culture are often at odds. We really value exploration, mm -hmm. um, failure, discovery. Um, and repeat the process. Mm -hmm. And schools right now, more than ever, are valuing assessment. That's right. And, and that 
is frustrating for Marley, like especially in this junior year of high school. She wants to gain mastery and understanding, and they want to evaluate her. And while she has extremely high marks, she's frustrated by not having a chance to really digest information before she is assessed on it and then graded. So she's often caught in the bind of, do I just perform? Mm -hmm. And the art and the joy of learning is really highly diminished in this space. So she's she's mad most days. <laughs> well, you know, that's highly justified because being a teacher in the classroom as well as at the university myself, the single most critical thing is motivation, obviously, intrinsic motivation and not extrinsic, which is assessment and, and grading. And so it's always been the strategy that is the best strategy for a, a teacher that wants to be a great teacher is find out what it is that's intrinsically motivating and then figure out through multiple intelligence and other ways to get to that with your students. So I, I'm 100% in agreement with her that the system is broken with regard to the emphasis on grades and extrinsic motivation only. Yeah, and she's mad. I mean, she's mad. And the, the pragmatist in me, because now she's not 10, I'm like, okay, so where are we? What happens here, right? Because um, I just don't want her to be mad every day. Yeah. It's just not good for her. So I was like, we here is yet another place. And I do talk about this in my book. I was like, we have to find a way to mediate the situation. Mm-hmm. There is a system that pushes teachers to evaluate you consistently. There is a structure at play that structure is obstructive to you and it's obstructive to the teacher. I'm confident teachers do not want to assess you with the frequency they're currently assessing you, right? And so what you're seeing as a set of irritating teachers here and there is a systems-wide issue. And once you start to recognize that there's a system organizing it, you can gain some empathy for the teacher and you can even be more understanding about the situation that is happening with you. So that doesn't change anything. The question is, how high is your irritation, your frustration with this? Is it enough to want to simply tear the system down? Is it enough to organize your peers? We must do something because staying in a state of constant irritation is just not good for you as a human being. It just is not. And I really push all my friends, my family, my child myself is to say, okay, if this feels untenable, then I have to do something, right? I have to do something. And so for me, because action towards addressing a problem feeds the soul. And I recognize that the world right now sucks. (laughs) And so I cannot let it overtake me. So I'm going to continue to just push this little thing up the hill and try to do my part. Because if I don't, I just fear that I will be overwhelmed by it and I'll become really saddened. And I really want to avoid that. Yes, yes. So Janice, of course, on Live Above the Noise, we talk about noise, distraction, distortion, disruption, and overload. And with regard to today's situation, you know, your daughter is 16. As you said, the world is in this difficult place right now. Does some of that come from 
the, you know, the use of tech? Does it come from social media? And, you know, how does Marley deal with that? And how do you deal with that? What are your thoughts on that? Because many of our parents who are going to be listening to this, their children are going to just be immersed into this world of technology. What are your thoughts on that? I have a lot of thoughts for caregivers on social media. And a part of it has to do, you know, not with social media, but in relationship to social media. So I am deeply concerned that adults do not understand the important role that technology are playing in their children's lives. I think that they simply hate it. (laughs) Um, And so they don't learn it. And technology is now present and there's no going back. And so they need their own level of comfort, um, knowledge and skills around how technology works so that they can be partners with their children and direct them, especially if they're young, into this new frontier. So what I say to caregivers is like, If your child is on a social media platform, and most likely right now it's either TikTok or Instagram, you need to know what this platform does. What are its functions, right? One of my irritations is that, you know, my child entered social media at a very young age, and my husband and I both had it on our phone, is that you can't do a lot of blocking of the DMs. Mm -hmm. I would have loved to be able to like block the DMs. Marley didn't get any horrible message. I just didn't want her to get any messages at all. Good, bad, or indifferent. But when you have that platform, people can message you. You can decide not to accept it, but just people can send you stuff. And I just didn't want it. Um, What are the functions of TikTok? How does it work? Where do you get seen? Is it geocoded? Can people find your address? Do your children know that? I really want caregivers to be informed users and not let our children be out in these uh, social media streets without any protection or guidance. It has become such an obsession with me, especially with caregivers who so loathe social media that they're ignorant, woefully and intentionally ignorant. I would like us all to stop that. Well, you know, what's interesting uh, in what you're saying is A number of people that are right on top of this issue are saying that the planet has three major problems. So we all know that climate change is one of them. And the second one is the potential for nuclear war. But they're actually saying the third one is as big and it's human hacking. And it's based on the fact that algorithmic control through artificial intelligence is what's going to happen more and more and more to the point where it essentially you become subject to algorithmic control. Well, we all know what's happening already, you know, with how everything is being coded and measured and data. But for that to be talked about as the third largest problem on the planet for the future is astounding to me. You know, Tristan Harris and the people that are working in persuasive design up at Stanford and Google people and so forth, they're all saying algorithmic control is the next biggest problem on the on the planet. Um, I think it all makes sense. The AI stuff is completely and utterly out of control. And as a person who grew up with Terminator, I'm like, Skynet is here. Skynet. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
And and I'm not really joking about it. I mean, it's just overwhelming. The AI technology is overwhelming. And that is actually one of the very, very big reasons why I think a book like mine and books that really think about socialization is so important because the people developing AI need a set of ethics. And we are so concerned about the science that we forget that people and their ethics are organizing these things. And children's ethics and moral coding begins so early. And so we need to cultivate children who have a particular ethics that thinks about how to enhance equity. And if we do so, then some of these challenges around AI, I argue, will be abated. But we keep forgetting the saliency of socialization and its ongoing influence in the choices of professions that we make and the ethical considerations that we have when we become adults. So I would really like caregivers to recognize that the locus of control to change the world is within their four walls of their home especially as it relates to raising children who are interested and attracted to technology and may become a part of this growing potential threat or even a potential benefit to society. Well, I find what is interesting, of course, is that we look at things in a general sense, and yet there are a trillion individual decisions, which is in many ways what you're saying there. You know, we talked about on one of your other podcasts, Rob has been a media expert for many, many years. And at one point, we actually mentioned on the podcast that a company had come to Rob and asked them if he could, as a psychologist, find ways to work with their product to hook children on their product, which was a extremely violent video game. And of course, he said no to all of this. But what strikes me with regard to you know what we've just been talking about is Each one of these things is an independent conversation. So this company decided, hey, we don't run the whole world. This is just this one game. We'll be okay with this one thing and hooking kids on this one thing. And somebody else thinks the same thing and somebody else thinks the same thing. And so collectively, we move toward this lack of responsibility in a sense, which is kind of what you're saying. And so you have this effect that comes in from all the sides, and yet they're really a trillion individual decisions that are being made. And you know, what's interesting about that is the science that you're mentioning. I mean, even the people that have addicted the planet, the digital world to social media and to smartphones, they admit we made a mistake. We We didn't, you know, it's like we didn't understand the human brain neuroplasticity, how it rewires itself. And we're sorry, that we have 3 billion people now that are addicted. You know, it's like, where were you at the beginning of this in terms of what you understood and the research you needed to know about the human brain before you began going down this pathway? Mind-boggling to me. The thing is, it's also like, what questions are you asking yourself? I'm obsessed with questions. I'm like, you have to ask yourself a set of questions And if you don't ask yourself a set of questions, and if you don't ask yourself a set of really good questions, then you end up in these really awful places. So I love the idea, and I love what you just said, Wayne, about these. These are all a kind of set of individual decisions that are being made. But what I have found is that 
it's often the, the framework, like people apply the same framework regardless of the individual situation. Mm -hmm. So framework that you have is one like, you know, we know and keep hearing about is always to optimize a decision that puts you at the top, regardless of penalty to others, then that's going to be made whether you're choosing, you know, you're standing in line, you know, waiting for pizza and somebody else is next to you. And it's also going to be the same one in the workplace. It's going to be the same thing in your parenting that if your framework of the world is I must always win, Mm -hmm. then it doesn't matter what happens because each individual decision you make is going to be made based on that framework. And so I'm hoping with this book is that I can help people reorient their framework, that they can gain a new framework, one that privileges uh, social connectedness, privileges equity, and privileges the idea that we can, in fact, create something new because the most wonderful thing about the world is that we're still in a creative position, that we can craft and recraft, step and pivot, um, and develop our world in a way, in the way that we want it to be. It is not out of our control. It's in fact within our control in many respects. And once we recognize our agency, then we can make different choices. And that needs to start very early because we're constantly creating new generations of people and they need a framework that can move us towards a more equitable and just world. And from the standpoint of a parent, I know we talk about being intentional and intentional parenting. That's a lot of it right there is to be intentional on exactly what you what you want to deliver to your child, what messages you want them to get. Yeah, it's intentional without being a helicopter or a helicopter parent or being sad or feeling like a drill sergeant, right? Is like it's the level of intentionality that you take towards brushing your teeth. <laughs> right? Like, cause I think sometimes when people hear these different words, they're like, Oh my God, yet another thing, uh, yet another thing I need to do. <laughs> right. Um, and that is not what I am trying to convey. What I'm trying to say is every day we wake up, we know we need to brush our teeth. We brush our teeth because if we don't, then we will have cavities and, if we do that enough times, we'll only have gums and those gums may even get infected. Is that we make a decision that having a healthy <laughs> mouth is a good idea. And as a result, I have to do this thing. I have to go to the doctor every six, you know, six months. I have to get a checkup. I got a floss. I just got to do it. And so it is both intentional, but it isn't so overpowering. Because that concerns me because I don't want caregivers to read the book and then be like, yet another thing Mm -hmm. that now a load I need to drag down the road. What I want them to do is to get a kind of levity in their spirit, um, a framework that says, oh my God, it is true. I do organize my kid's life and I can just decide how I want to organize it. I want to organize it in a way that they recognize people matter, they matter we're hitting this thing together. Um, And I'm going to do that with a kind of freedom and joy. And so that is the place, but it is intentionality without the burden. Uh, Janice, if you could take one 
core element for parents that you would say out of all the thousands of things, there's one that stands out as one of the single most important things to pay attention to for raising a child. Is there one thing that stands out in your mind? You know, that's so hard, Rob. Of course you would ask the super hard question. Yes, of course. Uh, (laughs) I would say parent yourself. I think of all the things that this book is about, it is mostly about the parent. And the parents are where most of the work has to be done, not the child. Um, And that each caregiver needs to have a good handle on who she or he is. And once they have a good handle on that, and by handle, I mean, are you joyful? Are you really inclined towards equity? Are you asking questions? Are you creative and imaginative? Are you community-centered? Parent yourself and then, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Then you're in a good position to, to share, direct, coach your children. Well, I know that you said in one of our other conversations that uh, to have joyful change-making girls, you need to be a joyful change-making parent to whatever degree you can, I assume. Yeah. But uh, that's the case, isn't it? That is the case because parents are actors in the child's life and they are who the children will see what appropriate behaviors are supposed to be and hear the words and the clothing and the values. They are the models. So how then can we profess to be in a house with children saying something to them that they ought to be when we ourselves are not those things. It's hypocritical, and I think it's unjust. And children begin to see how unjust it is as they age. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the caregivers who are like, well, I don't have to eat the veggies. You do. You're a growing child. And any kid who gets old enough and now will Google will say, well, it seems we all need to eat these veggies. (laughs) (laughs) So it's in this respect, if we want children to be filled with this internal optimism that drives them to act and to be connected with others, then we must model that for them of how that could look. You know, Janice, you are highly self-reflective, highly. As a model for other parents, I would say, when you listen to Janice and you read her book, you understand what she possesses that you need also to work on, which is the self-reflective skill necessary that all parents need in order to parent themselves. And so to me, the focus of what you just said was all about this is the core element of what is going to break down in society more and more unless we address it because of AI, as well as parenting, because the speed of change and getting more and more busy, and then parents using that as an excuse for, I don't have time. I just don't have time. You know, that that's the, that's the excuse is like, I'll do the best I can. But the self-reflective component is what I heard 
And that's because you are that as a model. Well, you just said something that, I mean, Rob, you just touched my heart on this because, you know, it defines so much of this week for me is that caregivers are like, I just don't have time. And I watch people, I mean, this is my whole life. I have watched people work harder at their jobs. I've watched them work hard at sports. I've watched them work hard at attempts of relationship saving. And then when it comes to taking 15 minutes each day to simply sit on a bed or couch or on the floor with their children, they're like, I don't have time for that. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what are you saying to me? You said your children are the most important things to you, but you will give an employer more than that employer even asked because the employer says a certain amount, but you want to demonstrate that you can be a thing. So you give that employer more. You have decided that you want a particular kind of body. And so you're going to organize everything so that you can do more. You have decided that you want to master this other thing. And so you're going to give it more. But 15 minutes a day, you cannot pause to simply say, hey, tell me about your day. What are you thinking about? And you also cannot spend 15 minutes for yourself to say, hmm, in all that I did today, how do I feel about what I've done, right? And so this notion of I don't have time to attend to the things that I articulate are the most important things to me is one of the great hypocrisy of parenting that actually frustrates me to no extent and is a part of like my driving conversations with caregivers is that you decide what matters to you by how you allocate your time. And if your children matter to you, then a part of what you have to do is not simply engage with them in a way that is about organizing their day, providing their meals, but attending to them. And if you matter to you, then your day is not simply organized around the pragmatic functions of your day, but also attending to you. And so I do spend, like I tell people, people are like, well, what's your routine? What do you do? I do pause to have real sense of gratitude in my life and to take stock of my steps and missteps. And, you know, I tell Marley all the time, I was like, look, kid, here's the deal. I, um... I'm not living in your body. I'm mostly guessing. I have a lot some science behind me. And so I'm going to mess up. And when I mess up, I only have one gift in response to messing up. Is that I'll ask you how badly I messed up. You will, of course, be so rigorous with your analysis of how <laughs> bad I am. And I will make a vow to try to do better the next time. And because I'm committed to doing better the next time, then I will take the action steps to do so because you matter to me. And so a part of it is this relationship with her is one where I recognize that there will always be things that I get utterly and completely wrong. I used to say that if I was going to write a book, it's going to be called One for the Couch right? Like this one, I was like, oh, that mess up is going to sting. That's probably going to stay with you for a little bit. I have to reflect on myself 
and in the process, reflect on the relationships, the husband relationship, the friendship relationship, the child relationship, and how can I grow? And reflection is so central to that. And that's why the name of your show is so valuable to me, because you must You must stop the noise. If the noise is in your head, you cannot reflect. And people are not pausing the noise. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Y'all going to have to hold that so that I can have a second, take a breath, reflect in order to plan about how I'm going to move forward. Right on. You know, Janice, Rob has a, a term that we've been talking about, and it's called silent noise. And Rob, could you talk? to us about that a little bit? Yeah, well, we explain a little bit of uh, live above the noise, but basically uh, we look at it as a cycle of noise. That what's happened is over time, the cycle has developed from the power partners of tech, media, and consumerism to start with, and what their agenda is with regard to artificial intelligence, making money, capitalism, worldview, versus consciousness. So it starts there. And that is fed into the way we process information, which then creates digital dependency on the second level. The digital dependency then causes distraction, silent. This is all silent now. So what looks good, smells good with regard to products and programs is basically algorithmic convergence of different forms of media. So they set you up by converging media with algorithms, taking your data, and then at the same time, making you digitally dependent. And all this is silent, which then causes distraction, distortion, disruption, and overload. And then the individual around the cycle has to compensate, cope, because the human brain is not arranged or set up at the level that it can handle that. So it will not handle that. And so what we see is the number one health problem in the world is anxiety. 300 million people depressed worldwide. Uh, I think 19% of adults have mental illness. 10% of children are depressed. So this is the coping combined with the breakdown in mental health. And what the coping does is it creates a cognitive shift internally where there's a splitting or a separation between self-reflective skills and just getting by outside inside communication. So the outside communication dominates, overwhelms. The inside communication is sacrificed, especially in terms of self-reflective skills. And then what you wind up with is a susceptibility to more noise. And so you've lost your freedom. You become more dependent and your well-being is diminished. And all of that leaves you with the coping skill to want more noise. And here we are in this loop, and it's all silent, and we call it the, the cycle of noise. I completely agree with that. I think that, that that process gets repeated over and over and over again. And the interruption, I think that's where reflection allows for interruption. And you know, I really value the concept of pivoting And I ask folks, like, when you reflect, then you recognize your missteps and you can change. Mm -hmm. But in the absence of reflection, you end up being on this kind of treadmill and not being able to kind of get off. So, Janice, one of the things that you had said was important was to have your child realize that you are not just mom. 
<laughs> you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, I say caregivers, I say parent, but so much of the care work in the United States sits on the shoulders of people who live as mom and women. And much of what that means is that our identities are tied up into our parenting. And for me, I love being Marley's mom. Like I absolutely love it. And I didn't think I would. I didn't want to have any children. And so I am just enamored by her. I really enjoy the role uh, that I play in her life. But I'm also other things that I absolutely love as well. And I want my daughter to recognize my humanity. Mom is analogous with high-level adult servants. (laughs) And um, I don't just exist to serve her, to feed her. Um, help her eat now at this stage, organize her clothing or provide her rules. I exist. I exist in relationship with her. She gets passions and desires. She has insecurities. She has questions. And so do I. And I really want caregivers to take it seriously that they are more than high level adult servants. They are full sentient beings who have desires and insecurities, and that is important for their children to see so that children can begin to honor the humanity in them so that as they leave their home, they can honor the humanity in other people. The one-dimensional approach of selfhood that a person's either A or nothing else, I think, is really just not congruent to the idea of change-making or justice. It is when we see people in their entirety, in their fullness, that we can then be in relationship with them in ways that matter. And this is particularly important for someone like me who rejects colorblind ideologies and really want us to understand the ways in which we're very complex. So it extends beyond this kind of role of like, yes, I want her to see me as an educator and a strategist, but I want to see me. See that I'm here. See me fully. See my fragility. See my grace. See my strength. And I want caregivers to, especially moms, to show that to their children. It will help them and it will also help their children. And it will also be a really great way to have children really recognize that if we want equity in the world, we have to remember that these are people it's people work and people are complex and we have to honor that about them. So to me, that's just like a very, very essential and foundational set of ideas. Well, that's just wonderful, Denise. When parents get your book, I know that there are some activities in there and you feel pretty strongly about those. Could you explain that a little bit more? Yes. So at the end of each chapter, the assignments are my favorite because I wanted something that was user-friendly. And so the assignments are for caregivers to try. You can try any chapter. You can pick up the book, even if you haven't read anything else, and be like, let me go to the assignments and see how this works. It's an opportunity to connect with your children, to connect with your community, and to have a little bit of fun in order to enjoy this book fully. 
and you don't like it, try another one. It is really for you to open up in any place and just enjoy it as much as possible. It's not just philosophical. There are real practical things in here for you too, as a caregiver. I would just like to uh, let Janice know that I am a thousand percent aligned with your work. You're saying the kinds of things that need to be said today, and you're 100% on target. So I want to express our gratitude and thank you so much. Oh, no, thank you, Rob. I thought you were about to ask me yet another hard question. (laughs) 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 Well, and of course, I feel the same, Janice. So uh, we just wanted to thank you so much for joining us. I know our audience is just going to love this and get a lot out of it. And we highly recommend that they get your book, go to these assignments, do these things. And I love the name of your book, Parent Like It Matters, How to Raise Joyful Change-Making Girls. I mean, and I really want caregivers to recognize, like parents, you have to parent like it matters because it really does more than ever what we're doing in our homes is going to shape the future of the world. Well, thank you so much. And thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. And just a reminder that you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many other podcast providers. So until our next episode, live above the noise. Hello, everyone. If you'd like to get our email update about new episodes and all the latest information, please sign up for our Noise Watch update on our liveabovethenoise.com website.